Every Wednesday from 2 to 3 p.m., WRFL invites you to Office Hours, real-world conversations with UK professors. No appointment necessary. Representing the 16 colleges across campus, Office Hours brings professors from every corner of UK to share their adventures in academia. Go beyond the syllabus and learn more about the people behind the research. We'll be demystifying higher education one interview at a time. Stop by every Wednesday afternoon. Office Hours is available online via wrfl.fm or on the airwaves on 88.1 FM, Radio Free Lexington. Hello and welcome to Office Hours. It's Wednesday. This is the University of Kentucky College of Arts and Sciences show where we interview faculty. My name is David Cole. I'm here with Brian Connors making on the board and our guest today, Mary Anglin. How you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you for inviting me here. Well, we're glad to have you on the show. Um, let's kick right into it. What do you say? Cool. All right. First question. You know, I was looking at your bio on the uh, Arts and Sciences website, and it says that you're doing ethnographic or ethnographic research. I'm sorry, on popular forms of activism in women's health and work on differential access to care for poor women and women of color diagnosed with breast cancer. That's a direct quote. Uh, can you tell us about your work with breast cancer? Sure. I mean, I've been I've been doing this work. This will date me, but I've been doing this work since the early '90s when breast cancer wasn't quite such a household term. When people really didn't think very much about it, mm-hmm. and way before there was a you know October as uh, Breast Cancer Awareness Month or any of that kind of stuff. And so my initial work was a lot with women who had been diagnosed with cancer and who were trying to find their ways really just literally to survive. Because as I learned to talk about it, it wasn't that they were failing treatment. The treatments were failing them. The kinds of things that were available really just weren't helping people. And what I found out as I did more work was that that the kinds of things that, the kinds of resources that people who are middle class and have health insurance just take almost for granted were things that were conspicuously absent for women who are poor, for people who are in this country who are undocumented, and for a wide range of people. And one of the things that I learned, and I promise I won't do too many statistics, is that since the late 1980s, there's been a huge gap in terms of survival between African-American women and Euro-American women. Irregardless of what stage you're diagnosed at, African-American women have a 40% higher rate of mortality, meaning that they're more likely to die. And that doesn't have to do with anything other than the kinds of resources and the kinds of possibilities that are available to them. To me, that's a rich ethnographic question. Mm -hmm. And it's it's a question that you ask not just because it's intellectually interesting, but because hopefully we can do something about it. That sounds like it's got this wide scope to it. Now, now what is the area that you're covering with this research on breast cancer? My, the, my research area is uh, Northern California, and I, I will stay pretty nonspecific like a lot of ethnographers do because I want to be really respectful for, to the people with whom I do those interviews, and I want to protect their confidentiality. Right. But I'll tell you that parts of California have the highest rates of breast cancer in the world. So it's a great place if you're wanting to talk to people with these kinds of healthcare issues. Mm-hmm. It's also a place where there have been um, notable economic recessions that take money away from healthcare resources and some hospitals and clinics that are just heroic in what they do. Now, before the show, you sent us an excerpt from a book that you're currently working on. Uh, in that, you explain that this woman whom you've given the pseudonym of uh, Lois Williams to was having a difficult time getting the health care she needed because of her level of income. Can you tell us about your experiences working with her and the other women that you interviewed when you were working on this book? Sure. Lois Williams died at the age of 51. And by everybody's account, that was a tragedy. And she left behind a nine-year-old daughter and college-age sons. So to me, there's a huge story there. And there's a story that can be told a lot of ways. Some people would talk about her story as one of denial or fear or running away because she had interactions with the healthcare system and then conspicuous kind of gaps 
in terms of care and the end of her life she left treatment and that's the way the providers at this wonderful facility called City Hospital would narrate her story is what a shame and she came back and it was too late but what I found when I talked to Lois Williams was a really different kind of a story mm -hmm. she was to me an amazing person dealing with the chaos of what we call in California or in New York City or other places an SRO single room occupancy kind of hotel a flop kind of house mm -hmm. that had been taken over by this the city and had been turned into a temporary residence for people with various kinds of disabilities you had you had to go through the city's health care system to qualify both in terms of the level of health care need and, and income to be there and she had just gotten temporary kind of residence there she was about to be kicked out as she was about to go into more surgeries and more chemo for her breast cancer. So everything about this was chaotic. And I wanted to really talk about that story. Because what I found was somebody who was, who was bright and really interested in, in figuring out her problems. But the resources and the way they were made available or denied her created a situation where she literally died. Wow. Now, your research as an anthropologist, seems to cover, like we've said, this wide area. So I'm yeah. really curious, is like, what kind of anthropologist do you consider yourself when you're doing this? A medical anthropologist, cultural anthropologist? I'd say all of the above. <laughs> and I would call myself, I was trained initially as a cultural anthropologist, and we do a lot of work with ethnography, which for us, uh, for a lot of us, it's looking at people's lives in context, looking at the kind of political circumstances, economic circumstances, uh, point in history, all the kinds of things that inform how people live and the kinds of problems or issues they deal with mm -hmm. and the ways that they make meaning and I think social change out of those circumstances. So that's the framework within which I work and I would talk about my work is also really much, very much as a lot of people do, con would say connected with social justice issues. In terms of medical anthropology, I see myself as trying to do work that has, that kind of crosses different sort of boundaries, disciplinary boundaries, but also boundaries of application. Because I hope that I can do work that can help people, not so that a Lois Williams isn't just a tragedy. She's a story about how good intentions on some people's parts, the the ways that our healthcare system dumps people that they consider to be, you know, irrelevant, mm -hmm. and and all the kinds of circumstances in which people find themselves, that those things can be brought together to fashion a coherent account that might change the way we think about health as a human right and the kinds of healthcare needs that people have, because they're complex. For Lois Williams, having a place to stay was, was one of her huge healthcare needs. You know, in some ways that's an obvious point, in other ways that's anything but obvious. You, you brought up there, uh big point of your research being this idea of social justice. And I think it's fair to say that in recent years, there's been a much more vocal movement, especially with the advent of like internet communication and whatnot, that there's a more public perception of what social justice is and how mm -hmm. the average Joe can act, you know, mm -hmm. in the benefit. Right. So since you've begun your research and up to now, have you seen any kind of positive change or would you say there's a positive change because of things like that or maybe because of things like that? Well, I, I think that looking at uh, the work that breast cancer activists have done over time, over the last 20 plus years, has made a huge difference that's been everything from informed consent because early on, believe it or not, women didn't even know that they had the right to breast conserving surgery. The mastectomy was presented as an option and very little other information was pr provided. But there were consent laws that were passed in the early 90s that make, make that such that everybody knows that and, and that people know that they have a right to certain kinds of care. So it's from everything from that to the kinds of resources that are made available through public hospitals um, to just more information about various kinds of healthcare issues like breast cancer. I think that, that those are the kinds of things that there's huge, huge, huge progress on. 
I think that there's not, the reason I gave you that one stat is I think that there's clearly a huge divide that I would say is, a, 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 I'd call it an, a class divide and a racial divide in terms of what these justice efforts have been able to achieve. Mm -hmm. And that, I think, um, sadly, right now in economic and other contexts being the case, um, I think that's actually, uh, it's languishing at best. And that's not because people aren't activists. It's because the terms are much more stark and the political realities right now are not, I think, as open uh, as they could be. All right. What made you want to study a disease as specific as breast cancer as opposed to doing m like more general medical work in your field? Yeah. Well, there are a lot of ways to think about it, and I think of uh, Susan Sontag's work on illness as metaphor and cancer as one of the huge metaphors for our time. We've de we declared a war on cancer in the 1970s, and I don't think anybody would say that we won it. That was uh, under President Nixon, just to to, uh, to date that. So, in one way, it's a kind of a it's a crucial issue in health. Um, and almost anybody that you talk to has known somebody with cancer and has maybe even walked for cancer issues or whatever. So it's a very potent kind of symbol. And I think in, in some ways that's part of uh, why I do the work now. As I said earlier, I mean, it was not really talked about very much in the 19, in the late 80s and 90s. Women were mm -hmm. kind of quietly dying from the disease. So to me, there was a kind of a need to think about what was going on that 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 would happen and that people would just have whatever kinds of treatments um, that they they encountered. I mean, I've interviewed people who've said that the doctor uh, the that basically they went to sleep for uh, a diagnostic surgery, meaning they didn't know if they had cancer or not, and they woke up without one breast. I mean, that's the those are the stark terms in which this this was happening and and people would I mean they talk about all kinds of crises and issues that they'd encountered so to me it was a rich way to talk about much broader kinds of things because if we're going to talk about things like social justice or health as a human right you have to sort of locate it in some way shape or form and for me it was uh, a really potent way to think about it. And we could almost talk at this point about fatigue, as uh, some people do, pink ribbon fatigue in particular. So um, you could say in some ways maybe we've um, stretched this metaphor as far as we possibly can, but I don't think so. I think we've, we've dealt with it in some ways, but we haven't looked at what I'd call the social fault lines through which some people have lesser access and quietly still die um, mm -hmm. from a disease that that we've been thinking about for decades and decades. Wow. I think we're going to take a short break and then we'll come back. You're listening to Office Hours on WRFL with Mary Anglin. Welcome back to Office Hours on 88.1 WRFL. I'm David Cole here with board runner Brian Connors Makey doing a bang-up job and our guest Mary Anglin. Thanks for coming on the show again, Mary. My pleasure. Thank you. Now, before the break, we talked about a lot of your research specifically involving breast cancer, but now I'd like to move on to some of your work in the greater Appalachian area. So, to move into that, you wrote a book about this topic, uh, Women, Power, and Descent in the Hills of Carolina. And can you tell us what kind of research you were doing on the Appalachian area? Like, what was your focus? I'd be delighted. Uh, when I'm not in Lexington, I like to, I, I call home in western North Carolina. So it's a place that I care about deeply. And we'd call that cent, uh, southern Appalachia as opposed to central Appalachia, which is where we would locate eastern Kentucky. So I see myself as having interest in both of these regions. And there are remarkable people who do work on health in uh, eastern Kentucky. I will put a shout out to Eula Hall who and the Mud Creek Clinic is one of my heroes from uh, many, many years. The work that I did 
for the book was about women's factory labor in this really funky little factory that I actually went past that building many times thinking it was a condemned building before I actually went in there to do field work. It was falling down, the windows didn't really have screens, and uh, it, was, it was quite a place. And it was a place where people processed mica, which is uh, a non-metallic mineral, and I don't want to go into a lot of details, but the kind of interesting part about that is that it's a mineral that's found in the mountains, and in this case is is uh, processed in sort of um, not very high-tech ways, but it has high-tech applications for things like uh, radiation therapy uh, for cancer, to get back to our earlier topic, or for uh, military armaments or space expeditions. It's used because it, of specific properties that it has. So I was interested in looking at this because it was a long-term uh, kind of industry in the mountains and it relied a lot on women's labor but it also relied on really exploitative labor patterns so that's what I did I hung out in this factory with a bunch of women on the upper end and just talked with them and worked with them a little bit and got to find out about their lives and also the ways in which even though it was exploitative, the ways in which they exercised some control over the conditions of their labor. They were really remarkable to me. And um, a lot of times people look at, at, at Appalachia and talk about how quiescent or uh, passive and accepting people are of, of unfair conditions and sort of say, why don't they resist? What I saw was anything but that. I saw people working within terms where they could feed their families and maintain a livelihood, but they could also work for dignity and to make their work day better. And they also looked out for each other. Mm -hmm. So that's the kind of work that I did for that uh, for that project. I'm also really interested in issues about environment and health. And that for, uh, for a lot of us, that, that has to do with um, different kinds of things, including, uh, I've just mentioned mica mining and and the effects on the region for that. But we could also look at things like fracking and what happens to water quality. Uh, we can look at coal dust and and um, the need for more for safer forms of containment of coal mm -hmm. dust and the health effects of exposures uh, to to these kinds of contaminants. So that's actually why I, I went and I got an MPH from a public health school, and it was because I wanted to be able to have some of the technical public health kinds of training that would make that kind of knowledge, the things that I saw around me, uh, useful to people so that they could, you know, maintain their health. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Moving on a bit, uh, earlier this year, in March, I believe, you gave the keynote address at the University of Illinois Chicago's Second City Anthropology Conference. Yeah. That's a mouthful. <laughs> yeah. uh, one of the topics of your address was this idea of what you called activist ethnography. Can you explain to us what that is? Sure. And I, you know, shout out to the organizers of that conference. It's a really cool conference that graduate students in anthropology put on, and it's really a national and international conference. And it's just exciting to be asked to be part of that. So I'm really, you know, I'm pleased and grateful to them. I think that there are a lot of us uh, who would talk about activist anthropology as what we do. And it's not to say that we are not careful uh, researchers doing what we would call social science research and doing ethnography that's very thorough and, and um and well-rounded in terms of its methodological scope. But we also see the work that, we do, that we're doing as having certain kinds of aims. And I've, just, I've mentioned the word social, the term social justice, which, as you're telling me, it's kind of like as common as air in certain kinds of ways. It's a, it's a term that may be, in a certain sense, losing its meaning. But if what one thinks of is that you're doing research that's not just about um, advancing knowledge, but about making the narratives of people who often aren't heard from and the situations that they encounter, mm. part of public discourse, and not only that, but a critique of the, of the circumstances that are such that hopefully one can look at social change as the outcome of the research. That to me is what we would talk about as activist ethnography. And my work is explicitly feminist, or we might even use intersectional and its in, intentions, because I really am looking at issues about civil rights 
and justice in a broad-based way. And mm-hmm. if that's the if that's what you think your work is about, then you approach it differently. It doesn't mean that you don't try to make sure you're very careful, as I say, methodologically. But you see the aims as being um, as being really be, being responsible to communities and constituencies that are often uh, left out in the power dynamic. So that's the way I describe it. Okay. Now, how would this idea that you just described tie back into your career? Well, I think that what it does is it means for me that it's really important to train students because you have to have other generations and who are also concerned. And I am, you know, I have remarkable students that I'm, you know, thrilled by the work that they're doing. Mm-hmm. You need to be able to train people to continue to think in these terms. You need to be answerable to the mm-hmm. constituencies with whom you uh, do your work. As I like to say, it's a it's a counter to what I'd call hit-and-run ethnography, the notion that you just go into a community, you take their stories, you run away, they don't know what you've done, they don't know what kind of use you're going to make of it, and they feel exploited. And for a lot of reasons, they don't want researchers of that, of that ilk mm-hmm. coming near because it just makes them more vulnerable. So you become answerable, and you have to be able to say over time, you know, what you're doing, how you're presenting your work, and you also, I think, think have to try to to uh, find different applications that are community driven that aren't just from kind of the ivory tower or from your own intellectual kind of background but are are based on the kinds of things that people are telling you and that can be for example in my work with on breast cancer if I'm thinking about the remarkable breast cancer clinic that is housed one afternoon a week think about that in a major urban area by physicians and cancer navigators and a lot of other folks. If I'm thinking about that, it's also being answerable to those people and what you learn from what they're trying to do. So that you're not taking, you're not, you're not allowing yourself any kind of stereotypes here, and you're not trying to make it a one-sided story. But you're trying to make it a story that means something, that really goes somewhere. So to me, that's what, that's the way I take that. And breast cancer, as I say, the mortality rates are still too high. Uh, so you know, it's it's a little less than forty thousand women in the U.S. who will die from breast cancer this year. Mm-hmm. It's almost three million women who are living with breast cancer right now in the U.S. There are a lot of people who are not diagnosed because of a lot of things, the kinds of story, the kind of situations that Lois Williams encountered. So to me, that's where that goes. That, that activist ethnography, that activist kind of intention, has to be about doing this work and. You, Public health folks have done it for many years, calling it social medicine or looking at the social determinants of health and trying to see how you can change policy and how you can change the way we think about and work on health care in this country as just a part of that and calling it a kind of a matter of equity. Mm-hmm. Do you think that there's a shift now towards more anthropologists adopting this activist ethnography style of doing their work? Or do you think that that's still something that needs to be worked for? Well, I was trained at an institution, the New School for Social Research uh, in New York, and I think that they, we called it something slightly different there. We called it critical anthropology. Um, but I think that, that and, and that school is an outgrowth of uh, of European institutions, so it's a it's a kind of um, I think a, a concept with a long history to it, but clearly there's always a need, and there continues to be a need. And I think the other part of it is that it means that anthropology has an application and a value beyond beyond just the university. And if we train students to understand that, then we're really doing things to educate the citizens of the future and we're also trying to um, make the world a bit better place so there's clearly a need for more activist ethnography as far as I'm concerned and what's really important about that is if you're really doing your homework well and you're really listening to what people say and you're giving them a chance to voice their own opinion not just answer your you know canned questions Mm -hmm. then you have something to go on besides just your own ideas Well, I think that's all the time we have for Mary Anglin. Thank you so much for joining us on the show. My pleasure. I enjoyed it. Thank you. We'll be back after the break. You're listening to Office Hours on WRFL.
You're listening to Office Hours on WRFL FM 88.1, your only alternative left. I'm Cheyenne Homan, and I'm going to uh, play for you now an interview I did with Matt Page, who's a professor in the College of Fine Arts, um, talking about the differences between digital and uh, digital art and graphic design, as well as some about his history with music and making audio art. So here goes. My name is Matt Page. I'm a lecturer here at the University of Kentucky. Currently, I teach graphic design introduction, um, and then I have also taught Art Studio 200, which is an introduction to digital um, art. So what's the difference between graphic design and digital art? You know, I think typically people have seen graphic design and art in general as being two sort of separate areas with with some overlap, and, and I prefer to sort of teach graphic design as if and, uh, and digital art as if they were both part of this sort of umbrella term of visual communication. So within both camps, regardless of um, whether you consider yourself an artist or a designer, a graphic designer, it's all communication. It's all about trying to convey something to an audience. And so regardless, you're trying to identify an audience, you know, what you want to say to that audience and is there some way of sort of um, creating some sort of dialogue there. I try not to focus on the differences as much as I try and focus on how both areas share so much in common. If I had to say there was a difference, I think the perceived difference would be that most students believe that graphic design has something to do with working for a corporation or a business to create some sort of branding or marketing campaign, um, which isn't um, untrue. Um, it's just that's a very that's sort of a modern way of thinking about graphic design, and so I try to go back to other historical moments where um, designers and graphic designers both saw their role in society less as a salesperson, right, a visual salesperson, but, but somebody who is actually interested in social change. So many, many design movements have, all, have been about um, trying to sort of reorient our relationship to urban settings, to, you know, aesthetics, um, so that we have, you know, many times for sort of utopian um, purposes or, or visions. Um, uh, of course, you know, they never quite work out the way they think, but, but that, that that spirit is within this field called graphic design, which I think surprises most students because, again, now we just think of it as sort of like this utilitarian, oh, I need to design a logo and I'll get paid to do that. It's the art that makes money, <laughs> you know, like, and it's like, not, not necessarily. Um, and so I try to, I'm, my goal in that class to, is to sort of start breaking down some of those assumptions about graphic design and about art, because many, you know, artists sort of toe the line there between what is graphic design and what is not. I mean, you can think of people like Barbara Kruger, who uses lots of text, or Jenny Holzer, or um, even Andy Warhol as being somebody who sort of toes that line between the graphic image, graphic design, and, and quote, fine art or high art. So that's sort of my long-winded answer for the, the divide between the two, um, or hopefully getting rid of that divide. Yeah, I think uh, especially students now probably don't conceptualize graphic design as being something that existed before digital technology Sure, existed. exactly. Yeah, and so actually, you know, since the semester just started, you know, we, we start with the Gutenberg Press, which is basically where, you know, you've got people making, you know, little, you know, um, metal pieces of, of lead type and then laying that type out and then inking it up, you know. So I show them the whole process, so it's sort of like, this is what you used to have to do to lay a page out, and now you can just simply type it out. Um, of course, I think something gets lost you know, there are all these advantages to the digital, but then there's something lost about really having to take the time to play with and understand, you know, sort of character spacing, for instance, like how close should your characters be, the space between lines, what they call letting. So, you know, when you have to manually make that stuff, it really teaches you about the intricacies of type, whereas now you can just fly through it so you're not really as worried about how, how type is constructed or how you know how you, how you lay out a paragraph or a page or a poster you can just do it so fast so you know just because you can do it faster doesn't mean you can do it better yeah I think it's also funny that on a lot of graphic design interfaces a lot of the terminology that's used to describe processes that you do digitally mm -hmm. now are the same 
ter terminology that we use yeah. in like an analog sure. <laughs> format, Absolutely. and I'm sure that's lost on yeah. A so lot that's of why you, know, you, got, you say, well, why do we call you know the line spacing leading? Well, it's because they used to take pieces of lead and space it that way, you know, and, and so even that's like, oh, okay, I see. Right. Um, so yeah. I, yeah, so I think all that's really interesting. I think students actually find that to be really interesting. As soon as you you sort of back away from it and say, you're not just going to be some like Photoshop monkey who's going to go and, and have an art director say, we need a poster for this company, make a poster for this company, that there actually is some real passion and, and, and some real thought behind being um, an engaged designer. And so I hope, hopefully those students sort of gather that as they take the course. Yeah, yeah. so how did you get into digital art? Um, I actually um, did not like computers at all. And then I was an undergraduate student here at the University of Kentucky. Um, and so I took a course with one of our current professors named Doreen Maloney um, because I had to. And I thought, I'm going to hate this because I, you know, I, I, I had been playing music at that point. I had been recording music for quite a while. Uh, but it wasn't on a, uh, an actual interface. You know, this is like, I guess I took this class like in the late 90s probably. Um, and so computers, it was still like, you know, I remember my first computer was like one of those, I don't even know if anyone will remember this, it was called People PC, And it was like you could like just sign up for like a monthly online connection and they sent you a computer. And so I reluctantly did that because I knew I needed a computer, but I hated it. But when I took that class, as soon as we started getting into the processes of, of Photoshop and video editing, there was something about the, the way in which the way in which the, the ordering of the process, especially in video, being linear just like music and time-based just like music, it was like, oh, this makes perfect sense to me. So I really found that it was easy to do the work, not that I didn't need help with, you know, sort of the conceptual and the aesthetic, but but the the workflow of it made a lot of sense to me. And so Ever since then, I've sort of reluctantly been a digital artist, I think, because um, I still, you know, yell at my computer all the time. But that's how I got here. Yeah, sort of like kicking and screaming, but loving it at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> so let's turn from the visual to the audio mm -hmm. uh, aspect. So I understand that you've been into music mm -hmm. forever. Mm -hmm. Do you want to talk about your sort of how you got into music? Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, um, I was the, the art kid at school, always was, and then my mom bought me an acoustic guitar, I thought, mm, this is kind of interesting, and then from there, just, you know, I remember practicing like 20 hours a week, I just could not stop playing, um, and so that's how, you know, I guess like most kids getting into music, you just sort of fall into it, or at least that's how I was, I fell into it, and found out that it was equal to the process of art making, if not more effective for me. Um, just I think f sort of my brain makeup, it made sense to me. Um, but I never got into sort of like reading notation. I think what made sense to me was sort of the, the body process, and the, the muscle memory of it, the repetition of it, um, that made sense with my brain. Um, so I was very comfortable there. Um, and then I you know, started playing in bands. So I've been playing in bands in Lexington for you know, 20 years at this point. Um, and you know, alongside that, I was always continuing to make art and studying art, um, and I went and got an MFA um, uh, in, in visual art. Um, and, and the things that you deal with in visual art, um, especially when you get into sort of the master's level work, um, which are highly conceptual, sort of, you don't deal with those sorts of um, ideas when you're creating sort of like rock music. But there are some really interesting overlaps there. And that's sort of where I am now in terms of, of both an art practice and a music practice. It's what makes up an effective visual arts practice, sort of what makes up a vital rock and roll practice, and like how those two things can come together. But in terms of my own musical practice, I, I currently play in a band um, named Dream the Electric Sleep, which is a, a mouthful. Um, and so we've been playing for about five or six years, and so that's what I'm currently doing with music, um, which is, again, I'm teaching graphic design, but I'm, but I always tell my students, you know, like, we do all of our own posters and, you know, advertising, all the CD designs, all of that stuff, which is, 
sort of one way that I also have gotten into graphic design was just being in bands for so long. You have to make your own, you know, advertisements basically, you know, and, and you do it in a way that isn't, again, driven by sort of like this idea that you're making designs for, for a corporation or a business. Though I guess you could call what we do a business, but it sort of comes from that place of passion where you're designing because you have a vision, and and it, again that that makes design really exciting when you say, hey, I have a vision for this project, um, whether it's a band or a local community project or whatever. Yeah, I mean I I encourage all of the design students that I have to try and make being a designer trying to make that something that is personal not just going through like sort of like hoops, jumping through hoops for job training, which it easily could be, um, but to find your own voice and your own, your own trajectory and your own sense of passion. Do you still play guitar? Oh yeah. I mean, every week, I, you know, you know we, we released this album nine months ago. Uh, the most recent album's called Heretics, um, and uh, it took two years to write and record it. So I, every week, you know, I, I rehearse with these three other guys and, you know, um, and I still just have a guitar laying around at home and I play all the time and um, it's sort of like the way people might meditate, you know, it's like I just, I can pick a guitar up and it sort of slows my brain down, you know, it, all my focus goes into this one, you know, task, uh, this one creative task. Even if I'm not writing or being productive, if I'm just just playing and noodling around, to continue that is really healthy. It's like saying you should work out, you know, an hour a week or two hours a week. You should probably be just creating, you know, every week as well for 30 minutes to an hour, two hours. So um, building a creative practice that's sort of sustainable. Um, I'm more interested in that than, for instance, um, creating, like, a brilliant art star. You know, like, I'd rather sort of, like, have the Big Ten approach, which is that, you know, visual communication is vital and important to our lives. It's fun. Um, you, you can express your own ideas this way. And we live in such a visual world anyway. Like, everything we do is an, an icon on a phone or, you know, in front of a screen. So you have access to all these quick tools, even, like, hipstamatic and, you know... Um, all of that stuff, you, you know, you're constantly making aesthetic decisions. So really the classes that we teach are, are just sort of like, they're about sensitizing you to, to those decisions. This portion of WRFL's programming is made possible in part by Doodles. Doodles offers breakfast and lunch Tuesday through Friday at 8 a.m. and brunch on Saturday and Sunday at 8 a.m. More information can be found at doodlesrestaurant.com. WRFL thanks Doodles for supporting College Radio. So earlier you kind of were mentioning um, the presence of rock or popular music sort of on campuses and in academia and how they're not really invited to the academic party. So right. do you want to talk about that sure. some more? Yeah, um, just from my own personal experience, I remember not feeling like I fit in anywhere. So for instance, you know, I'm, I'm a highly creative individual. I think I'm fairly smart, though I have trouble expressing it sometimes verbally, but I think I'm an intelligent person in terms of my ability to express ideas. Um, um, and, I, and I played music, but I couldn't read music. And so I, I didn't quite fit in, you know, to the, to the academic music setting. Um, and I didn't, I couldn't really bring over what I was doing outside of art into art, so I couldn't bring my music really into the art, except through, like, I, did, I would do video work, for instance, and I would cut the soundtracks to those. But it's still, you know, like, it was a smaller part of a course, for instance. Um, and so I always felt like, well, my strongest suit couldn't be used in an academic setting. I couldn't, I couldn't really find a way to, to rigorously um, explore what it meant to be a songwriter, to be part of a history of rock and roll. You know, now we've, we have a history of rock and roll course, which I think is probably doing pretty well, um, but um, it didn't really count towards my art major necessarily, or I would have had to really work to make it count. So it was always sort of this no man's land for me. 
Um, and I'm and I, being part of the music scene around here, and I imagine it's this way everywhere. And I've talked to other musicians about it. That you know, um, if you're somebody who is you know writing music and you're you're playing in clubs, and you're not a classically trained musician, you're a creative person. You know, um, where do you go to like sort of like continue really investigating what it means to be you know, a songwriter, regardless of the genre of, of what's, of the songwriting, um, or even just, you know, sort of like experimental songwriting, experimental audio, where do you go to get critiques for that kind of work, to perform that kind of work, to, to be in a room with your peers and share with your, with those peers and an instructor what it is that you're working on to get that kind of feedback, um, much the way that we run a studio course, you know, um, and because I'm not a trained, I, I didn't go through the, the, the program here, for instance, I don't know what's offered, but I know that I took a few music, music courses, and it was very different to, uh, as far as the tra trajectory goes. Um, it was very different from what I was learning in those courses. You know, music theory, I love it, and I know it, but, and I took that course here, it, and it was still helpful, um, but, it, but it was very divorced from that practice that I, that I had been building. Um, and I think that um, there is a space for that that demographic, that contingent of, of, of individuals out there that are interested in um, being really creative, being really engaged with that history and the, and the making of uh, of that music, um, and then sort of trying to push the contemporary boundaries of what that what music making means, what audio art is, and how that mixes with sort of traditional music making. Um, and so I'm hoping that we can bring more of that dialogue into the university. And I'd like to be a part of, of doing that so that those individuals can have that kind of space to express those ideas in that particular way. Because you can take a studio course and you can get all those things, um, but you just can't really bring in this other creative practice that you're, that you're doing. And it's, such, it's been such a, an important part of my life and it's really helped me understand what it means to be an engaged person in the world. Um, and I'm not sure that within, even within, let's say, sort of like the rock and roll underground music community, that um, there's a clear space to, to um, ask those questions and to get that feedback, you know, unless it's just sort of organized um, somewhere else. Um, so again, I'd like to try and create, help create a space like that, because I, th I think it's an incredibly, the questions that could be asked that those creative people could be asking about their own practices would, would push their music even further. And I think that oftentimes, you know, when you're, when you're trying to create sort of on your own in a little vacuum, or if you're just playing with this one group of people, you, you can really get stuck. You know, you really need like other people to come in and say, hey, have you thought about switching that chord, for instance? Or what if you change the melody this way? Well, does it have to be verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, chorus? Can, you know, what happens when you completely throw that out the window? You know, just to have somebody else come in and for you to be like, hmm, I'll try that. You know, like that kind of space would be really cool. Yeah, so you mentioned also sort of... Um sound art or experimental mm -hmm. sound mm -hmm. how do you how would you envision facilitating a course like that or critiquing something like that i you know i think you know you're probably very familiar with something like radio lab or this american life i mean those things are really accessible these days and it's just um you know going back to sort of like visual communication that all all visual communication is really about you know, um, communicating some kind of narrative, whether abstracted or sort of, you know, a traditional narrative of some kind. Um, so, um, so I think having a course where we can think about, you know, narrative in experimental form, in an audio experimental form, much like you might have Radio Lab or This American Life, and you can use those examples as, and to sort of like let students take a crack at it, you know, especially, you know, again, that, that musician who wants to come in, who's not classically trained says, Hey, I can do this soundtrack work and I can go, you know, find some sort of subject matter that's interesting to me. I can, you know, take out a field recorder 
um, and I can start putting this together. And then I'm in a classroom with all these people who can listen to it and say, "Oh, I, I'm not following, or I'm not, you know, I'm not getting what you're what you're trying to say here." Maybe if you rearranged it, you did this, you know, to have that community around those types of projects, and then to come to RFL and say, "Hey, we have ten, you know, awesome experimental, you know, narratives, you know," and then you can pick three or four of them and play them like that kind of um, community. Building on what we already have, you know, RFL being such a great resource already to sort of, you know, utilize that more. And I think, I think within our school, the School of Art, there really is a push to try and think about ways to, um, to work with WRFL more. Um, and, and courses like this would obviously be a part of that as well. Um, yeah. I was envisioning... Um an experimental music course, mm. and so you're giving feedback on someone's sort of like a composition, yeah. composition rather right. than an ex more experimental radio type of production. Right, right. I think that certainly we can we can do both. I mean, you know, it doesn't have to just be one course. You really could have one course that really focuses on sort of like experimental radio, experimental narrative. You could you could certainly do that. There's also just sound art in general, which, you know, just to be able to use the palettes, the palette of sound to create, you know, soundscapes, to create, in, you know, installations, sound installations, so you've got that whole area to move into, and then you do have sort of like experimental composition, which is, I think, maybe what you're talking about, where it's sort of like, it doesn't have to be necessarily about a radio format, but but really more about having some music students come over and just sort of like not worry so much about the notation and really get into the recording process experimenting with you know microphones and experimenting with using instruments in the incorrect ways and you know that sort of thing I think that would be also a cool space so right there there's three sort of courses that you could mold and I think students would respond to those types you know those each one of those courses would attract students from different places you don't have to be a musician. You wouldn't have to be like a media communications person. You wouldn't have to just be an art person. So I think there's a real appeal in, in, in a suite of courses like that. So yeah, I think that that would be amazing. And I'd love to teach those courses. It would be just so much fun. Yeah, it sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah. <laughs> um, do you want to say anything about Heretics? I'm sure, yes. Um, Heretics is it's a narrative album. It's a concept album, and it, and it basically... Um, you know, people can read about it on the website because I have a whole guide to the album that really sort of breaks it down. But the narrative, in a nutshell, is it's about um, Elizabeth, who is sort of a fictional character, but I based her on Elizabeth Cady Stanton, the um, women's rights suffragette um, who was fighting for women, the women's rights to vote. And so it really follows this sort of fictitious character and her struggles in terms of um, having to leave what she, the role that she's comfortable with or that she has been sort of um, prescribed, leaving that role um, and, and sort of, you know, the march towards justice and, the, and how frustrating that can be. So it's a fairly broad album in terms of you can really apply that to any movement that desires change. Um, and, and that's it just talks about that struggle, you know, from sort of beginning to end, you know, how you go through... The, the roller coaster ride of you know activism I guess would be one way of putting it so that's what the album's about
Business Hours is produced in cooperation with WRFL and the College of Arts and Sciences at the University of Kentucky. This broadcast theme song is Sandu, performed by Hugo Drupi Contini and provided by the Free Music Archive.